0: And what we need, we Africans and African-Americans and everybody in the world, needs to know we need to study slavery, the enslavement of Africans all over the world, and especially in the Western Hemisphere. It has to be studied as the history of civilizations.
1: Welcome to Tilling the Soil, a podcast dedicated to discussing the unique successes and challenges of preserving the history of enslaved people in the United States. This is a project of Whitney Plantation located in Wallace, Louisiana, a former plantation site dedicated to telling the story of slavery from the perspective of enslaved people. Tilling the Soil was funded by a 2021 Rebirth Grant from the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities. Your hosts are Amber Mitchell and Dr. Joy Banner. Episode 11, Slavery, Africa, and History. In this season wrap-up, Amber and Dr. Joy speak with Whitney Plantation's Director of Research, Dr. Ibrahima Sek about the site's connection to West and Central Africa, how the transatlantic slave trade is remembered on the continent, his journey as an African historian of slavery, and memorial work that still needs to be done at Whitney Plantation. Welcome back to Tilling the Soil, a Whitney Plantation podcast. I'm Amber Mitchell, Director of Education here at Whitney Plantation and co-host of Tilling the Soil, I'd also like to welcome my co host and esteemed colleague, our director of marketing, Dr. Joy Banner. Hi, Joy.
2: Hi, Amber.
1: And I am very excited to have joining us today our esteemed colleague and truly the powerhouse of research, education, and knowledge at Whitney Plantation, our Director of Research, Dr. Ima Sek, joining us today. Dr. Sek, would you mind introducing yourself formally to our listeners?
0: Okay. Hello, Amber. Hello, Joy. I'm glad to be here and uh To answer your questions, my name is Ibrahim Asseka, as we say. I'm the Director of Research of the Whitney Plantation Museum since 2000. That's 22 years now, and I share my time now with Africa. I'm taking the message back to Africa, teaching many courses about the links between West Africa and Louisiana, and also teaching a course on uh, the memorialization of slavery at the Whitney Plantation. And... Also, I've been working on a book that is under publication in the last phase in Senegal. There's another version also under publication here in Louisiana by uh, the University of Louisiana Lafayette Press. Entitled The, the book title is uh, African Cultures and Slavery in the Mississippi River Valley. Thank you.
1: Dr. Seth, can you tell us the name of the university that you teach at in Senegal?
0: Yeah, I teach at the University of Dakar. University Sheikh Antejob in Dakar, uh, Senegal. That's uh, the oldest university in French West Africa. And it is huge. And we have a huge history department. And uh, my colleagues are really glad to see me back and uh, handle diaspora studies. And also uh, teaching the history of the Atlantic slave trade.
1: So I guess I'll jump into kind of the middle of our, our list of questions here, thinking about The shape of how we talk about the history of Africa, namely West and Central Africa's connections to the slave trade and how many different cultures, ethnic groups ended up in places like Whitney Plantation. So I guess I'll start by asking, how is the history of the transatlantic slave trade discussed or remembered in West and Central Africa? And how does that differ from the ways that we remember it here in the United States and other places in the Americas?
0: First of all, I would like to tell you that uh, the first place ever in sub-Saharan Africa where a museum was designed to tell the history of the Atlantic slave trade, that museum uh, is on Goree Island and it's been there since the 1960s. And it was uh, handled by uh, the late Joseph Ndiaye. And people really appreciated his, uh, his work. And all the personalities who would visit Senegal, like Bill Clinton, Muhammad Ali, President Obama, President George Bush, all those people, when they get to Senegal, they take them to Gore Island and visit the so-called House of Slavery. Lamazon is a Esclaves, a so now all along the coast of Africa people are looking for a vestige of uh, the Atlantic slave trade, like buildings, dungeons. and Of course, the most impressive location for those castles you know, where they used to keep the captive before selling them away is uh, Ghana. So we have now many sites of memory where people go and visit and hear about the Atlantic slave trade. Uh, it can be the Gambia, you know, Fort James in, in the Gambia. We have also Elmina Castle, Cape Coast Castle, others castle in, in Ghana, Vida in Benin, Luango in Congo, now Bimbia in Cameroon, or also somewhere in, uh, in Angola, Mozambique. But that's not enough. I've been involved in a seminar that happened in. Uh, Ghana years ago. And the, the memory of slavery is everywhere in Senegal, everywhere in Africa, but people don't talk about it. Those are very painful memories. And even people were prohibited to go near those castles. And uh, everybody understands why. But now, one thing also is uh, missing. When you go to those castles, they tell you about the Atlantic slavery, but nothing about uh, the diaspora. Nothing, almost nothing about the diaspora. And that's something uh, that is really missing in our curriculum. As far as Senegal is concerned, I think I'm the first uh, professor of history who introduced the history of the diaspora in, in, in our program. That's missing too. One thing is also, uh, I think, missing, like it is missing here in the, in the United States. You know, the the. Slavery and the slavery did not start at those dungeons on Gore Island. There is a huge background geographically and also historically. The history of Africa is the history of all mankind. Africa is the origin of mankind, of civilization, and all of that. We know it. It is science, not science fiction. So that is also uh, missing. And what we need, we Africans and African Americans and everybody in the world, is to know. We need to study slavery, the enslavement of Africans all over the world, and especially in the Western Hemisphere. It has to be studied as the history of civilizations. The history of slavery is not only a history of deportation, hard work, but treatments on the plantations of cotton, sugar, indigo, or whatever. These people who were deported had skills very well-documented skills. And they built economies all around the world through the Trans-Saharan slave trade, Indian Ocean slave trade, from more Spain all the way to the Middle East, India, Indonesia. They built those economies. they They built also the economies of the Western Hemisphere, from Argentina to the United States and Canada. But they did not just build economies, but also they tremendously contributed to the definition of cultures. As far as the United States are concerned, we know that what makes American culture so lovable and people love it all over the world, it has something to do with uh, African, what Africans and African Americans have built on on this country. I'm talking about the culture, the music, the storytelling, the Bro Rabbit tales, Comper Lapin in Louisiana, tales I made. Those tales went into books like the old Uncle, Uncle Remus tales, and it went all the way to went all the way to Hollywood when you saw Bugs Bunny. And remember that the bunny came from Africa. So this is the way. Uh, what is missing? I mentioned what is missing in Africa and in the diaspora too, and we need to to fix it and have a global approach of. Uh, the slave trade and slavery and understand that this is something really we need to learn in depth. And I think that will help fight racism and, 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 and exclusion.
2: So Dr. Set, can you talk about specifically in in this region and, and what you just said is so beautiful about you know the culture. Now a lot of times that that gets omitted from you know the discussion of the contributions or even we're talking about slavery. we We leave out again, the impact of that culture on American culture and Louisiana culture. But being someone that is that is from Wallace, you know right right next to Whitney Plantation and growing up in this Louisiana culture, what are the cultures that you that you see that you experience? Where you, can, where you say, wow, that's a direct connection. I see a direct linkage between, you know, West Africa, Central Africa, and, you know, the, the culture that we have here mm-hmm. in this region.
0: Mm-hmm. We have many connections. Africans came, were deported from Senegambia, from the Battle of Benin, Gold Coast, the Battle of Biafra, which is today in Nigeria, or way to Cameroon, Central Africa, and Southeast Africa.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, all these people contributed to the building of the culture, especially when you consider non, uh, non-material culture, like st- spirituality. That's where we can really find African cultural unity. Even the tales I told you about, maybe the pro-rabbit is mostly in West Africa, in the savanna land, in Senegal, etc. but also you find the same tales almost everywhere, along the Bight of Benin, Central. Uh, Central Africa, and uh, now that's something historians are looking to, historians of culture, people involved in uh, uh, cultural history. When we look at the trends of the slave trade, and also we look at the culture, we we find the contribution of, of, of everybody. When you say Louisiana, it's not only Senegambians. We certainly, Senegambians certainly were the first to be deported here, especially in the 1720s. Like sixteen out of the nineteen slave ships that made it to Louisiana from 1719 to 1830, uh, uh, nineteen of them came from Senegambia. Nineteen out of forty-five, and sixteen came in the seventeen twenties. Senegambians really contributed to the building of the culture, uh, original culture, the Creole language, but also uh, let's say rice cultivation, animal husbandry, and many and many other skills. Then we have people who came from the Bight of Bay from Central Africa, and you know, all those people contributed. When you say Lusiana culture, think of Congo Square, You know, where it is clearly documented at the beginning when Black people uh, used to dance in Congo Square on Sunday afternoons, and you see them dancing in different circles, which mean different origins. And then later you see those circles melting together and creating that... Uh, what I call the blues culture which includes not only the blues but also jazz, hardcore, rock and roll and, uh, and all of that. So it is obvious that uh, every African who, who was deported and transported uh, and enslaved here in Louisiana they brought their, their, their contributions. And the were you from Wallace this is the German coast and we know that many of the tales that were reported along the river were reported from, from, the, from, the, from, the, from the German coast. And that's really important. That's really important. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I grew up with Kampel La My grandmother would, would talk about Kampel La compare Bouki, mm-hmm. and all those tales in, in Creole French. So I did I didn't realize until much later that this was a West African tradition. And you know, the, the amount of of resistance, you know, mm-hmm. of cleverness that's and resourcefulness that are in those tales. And you know, now as an adult, I still go back and I rely on those tales. When things mm-hmm. are getting really tough, I, you know, sometimes I tell myself, like, you have to think like Compella pay. You have to be clever like the bunny. You can't let the <laughs> you can't right. let the the power of the system win. You know, those tales, they really do, they really do mean a lot. And mm-hmm. that culture again of strength and, and resistance mm-hmm. is so important for us to Carry, especially with you know, with the, the things that are going on in our community. So I think it's great yeah. that we make sure that we understand those contributions.
0: Yeah, compare Lapin is something. Compare bookie. <laughs> uh, you know what is unfortunate about all of this? Mm-hmm. That uh, after the Louisiana Purchase, the new American authorities did the best they could to erase that culture.
2: Right.
0: But if you want to erase a culture, real quick, erase the language of the people. Creole was something that was uh, born, maybe started on the coast of West Africa, but also it was naturalized here and became a great language that everybody loved. Hmm. Either Africans and African-Americans, but also the, the, the master themselves. The children were raised by black women, and they all knew those stories of uh, stories of uh, Buki and Papa But Uncle Sam decided that uh, nobody should speak uh, Creole at school. French also was eradicated, and English became the the only language allowed at school. And uh, I think that uh, did uh, something really bad to the. the to the, to the memory you know, of the people. And let me give you one, one example. You know, Creole, that language was the vehicle of all those memories. Maybe you're lucky. You knew you know those uh, stories of Bouquet and Lapin. But what about the 1811 slave revolt, the largest ever, that happened right over there near your place? Mm-hmm. How many people you know along the river road who know who remember about that revolt? Not, yeah. When you go to New Orleans, like you come across the black masking Indians, mm-hmm. the so called white Indians, they have very nice songs, and the Creole was the vehicle of the liturgy, either in voodoo or for the black masking in- Indians, the songs were in Creole, but today. Uh, they have uh, kept a few lines in Creole in in their chants in their songs, but nobody knows what, what it means anymore.
2: Mm-hmm. That's really unfortunate. So, can you tell us what it was like for you? What were you taught about Africans that were in America now? Is it something that that people talk about? Is it still a sense of loss? Is there a sense of responsibility? Or so, what is it like to learn? about the African diaspora, and then also how did you get involved in, in researching this history?
0: Growing up, I was born in 1960. I grew up in the 1960s, in my little town in Matam on the Senegal River. And I always, I used to hear songs. I didn't know it was about uh, slavery or the slave trade, but I understood related. The memory of slavery is still there. People singing, like in Fulani about Yano Benghata, those who went and never came back. And many of the songs, when you understand really the language, you be the Wolof or Fulani, whatever. It can be Manningo too. The memory of slavery is into songs. And then later, I went to school, primary school in Senegal. You know We were a French colony. And I'm, I belong to a generation of like school boys and girls who... We had French textbooks and what did we learn about our history Just our our kings and queens were barbarians and we were told that selling human beings is a very bad thing that only happens in Africa, only Africans do, do that and things like that. So I grew up with that and went to high school and fortunately, In the mid-1960s, there was a change in the program. We decided to have our own textbooks. And when I uh, was a teenager, I did uh, learn a lot about uh, slavery, the Atlantic slave trade, the Trans-Saharan slave trade. But that wasn't enough. Like I said, uh, something was missing in the the curriculum is uh, the, the diaspora. Of course, I remember a textbook where we have something about diaspora, it was just one, one, one paragraph, like 10 lines. And what uh, they talked about in those lines is about the, the music, you know, about uh, practice like voodoo, but that wasn't enough. And until I made it to the university, I did not learn much about uh, slavery. But I was lucky enough uh, to have professors uh, who told us a lot about the trans-Saharan slave trade, and I did my, my master's degree, my master's thesis on the Senegal in the trans-Saharan Lecture. And later, I kept on discovering something. And the, other, the, the most important thing in my life, I mean, two things. The first thing is I was lucky enough uh, while I became, when I became a high school teacher. I was selected in 1989 to be part of a trip to the United States with Eight other Africans selected all over sub Saharan Africa to get here in the United States and discover the culture. They took us everywhere from Washington DC to New York, Boston, Massachusetts, Springfield, Illinois, down to Mississippi, Texas, up to Seattle, Washington. But what was striking for me was not uh, visiting Boeing plants uh, over there near Seattle. Neither whatever I saw in Texas or Springfield, in Boston, but it was our visit in Mississippi, Oxford, Mm -hmm. Mississippi. For the first time, I saw and heard a Delta Blue singer. And also, I went to a church, a black church, on the same trip. It was a Sunday, and it was the homecoming, the Second Baptist Church in uh, Oxford, Mississippi. And when I saw those people, you know, just uh, rocking the church, it uh, raised something in my mind. I said to myself, I have to come back in this country.
1: Mm.
0: So I went back to Senegal. I went into depression for a few years because not knowing what to do, how can I do it to get back to, to Mississippi, Louisiana, maybe, and uh, do something about uh, diaspora studies. And I was lucky enough in 1993, only Midlow Hall was invited to Senegal to do, uh, to do a keynote speech for the opening of the West African Research Center in Senegal. That was initiated by a Senegalese professor, Mohamed Moussa Khan and a, uh, an American professor right here from Louisiana, from Donaldsonville, Eileen uh, Julian. And you know, her uncle is the one who invented in 1964 the sugarcane planting machine. So, Gwendolyn Middle of had just published uh, Africans in Colonial Louisiana, you know that book. And she came to give a, a lecture about, uh, about the connection between Senegambia and Louisiana, and I was in the crowd. After her lecture, I went to see her. I told her, Madam, I know you're from Louisiana, and I'll, I'll find you one day. I will find you. And uh, what I did is to go back to the University of Dakar to complete my education and get a PhD. A doctoral degree on African cultures and slavery on the Mississippi River Valley. And I graduated in 1999. And the next year, in 2000, Godly Midler Hall, she's a very good networker. So the people of St. Martinville in Louisiana, Southwest Louisiana near Lafayette, wanted to do a sister city program with uh, an African city. And she told them, go to Senegal, go to Ireland. In fact, I have... Uh, One of my uh, students, she was talking about me. She was my mentor when I was doing research here for my dissertation. And he said he's coming back to Louisiana soon. Uh, It was in 1999. And I went to meet the people of St. Martinville. And we established that uh, sister city program. They traveled to Bore Island in December. In May 2000, uh, the mayor of Bore Island and his delegation came here into the United States. And I was the advisor. So we went to St. Martinville for the inauguration of the African-American Museum there. And after that, we went uh, back to New Orleans and spent two nights. While we were there, John Cummings, who had just bought the Whitney Plantation, he was called by Goldie Moodle Hall. And Hall told him, we have a delegation from Gordie Island, we should go over there and talk to them. And also talk to... Dr. Sek, he is a young teacher. He is in the delegation. He may be someone who could help with the building of the museum. And that's how we met Cummings. He took us to, our, to his hotel. It was 14 of us you now to the international house. and the next morning he took us to the, to the Whitney plantation. That was sometime in May 2000. At the first time I saw the, the plantation, it was a total. It just it was just like a war zone, you which know, <laughs> everywhere. And uh, we discussed, and he said, are you coming back soon in And I say, I will be back in the summer. And that's when we, we started. And the first, I wrote the first lines about, he told me, just educate him about slavery. And I wrote a paper for him, a short paper about uh, the Atlantic slave trade. And that's how we started. And I kept coming every summer. He would fly me to New Orleans, and I stay here through the, through the fall, and then go back to Senegal on time to teach. So that's when I started to dive into the archives uh, in New Orleans, Baton Rouge. And of course, the main focus was uh, the courthouse in Edgar, uh, where we have all those inventories of the Whitney Plantation, which was a Hydel plantation. And that's how, how, I, how I got involved. You know? But for me, of course I did. I did struggle a lot to get here. But somewhere, somehow, I consider that I'm not uh, the, the best. I'm very far from being the best for this job as a director of research. But also, I consider that uh, this is a uh, call of the ancestors. Mm-hmm. I'm not just here by chance. I'm telling you. And I knew when I was a little boy and a teenager, You know, we have our own African things. I remember there was a lady from Niger who came to the house and talked to me about traveling very far overseas, you know, and being famous and all of that. So I'm telling you, I'm not just here by chance. I consider that I am the guardian of the temple. I'm talking about the Whitney Plantation Museum. I've been here a long time, and I hope to be able to stay around many years to come. This is the only thing I want to do. The only thing I want to do is to work for the Partition and make sure this is a place where people tell the story of slavery, where people acknowledge what our ancestors suffered on this land, how they built the economies and also the culture.
1: Dr. that, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> oh my goodness, that was...
0: I feel like crying too.
1: <laughs> such a wow. I mean i knew some of that story but i feel very similar to you in that there is an energy that makes a way for us out of no way mm-hmm. to allow us to be able to tell these stories in this way it's a, a experience it's a privilege to be able to do that mm-hmm. and just the way that you just told us your story. It's so humbling, but also it's just so inspired because it's like, yeah, that makes sense because we, we feel, I feel it personally every day, you know?
0: I, not only me, I know that uh, many of the tour guides over there, when we were still doing real uh, guided tours, someone told me this place makes me feel healthy and mm-hmm. I'm doing this, I have so much energy. That's the way I feel too. I remember one day, it was uh, in December, on December 6th, uh, 2019, when uh, John and Donald Commons were handing hanging the museum over to the Whitney Institute. Uh, I was asked to, to, to speak. And at the end of my speech, uh, all the people came to me and asked me, where, where do you go to get your energy from? You know, Whenever you see me walking like a duck and uh, looking tired and all of that, but when I get into telling the story of slavery and telling you something about the meaning of this place for me, I didn't even know where I get, where I get the energy. Mm-hmm. And I can do it all day long. Mm-hmm. Start feeling tired or whatever. Yeah. So that's what I feel. And I feel the presence of the ancestors too. Mm-hmm. You were not there. Maybe it was there years ago and Dada uh, uh, go. Huna, Huno, who is the, the pope of Voodoo based in Wida in Nigeria? He visited he visited Whitney plantation. I gave him a customized tool with Queen uh, Dorothy Desir who is African American and uh, the Queen Mother. I gave I gave him a customized tool and I did him a tour. He was willing to do some kind of uh, performance or ritual of divination. Mm-hmm. John Cummings was there, Joey was there, Ashley, and all the other people. He said, this place will be so famous. People would, will come from everywhere, not only from this country, but also from everywhere. world visit it. And he told believe me, this will be a place of healing. People will come from very far for healing. Mm-hmm. Peace of mind, and uh, I think we'll get there. Unfortunately, we were stopped by COVID, and uh, to tell you the truth, the way I wanted the place to be, the implementation of the story of slavery, and all of that, we, we did well, we are doing well, but we need to do better, we need to do better, and especially find ways of displaying the culture. Hmm. I have a question about uh, the, you know, what is displayed at Whitney Plantation. We don't talk much about culture on the ground. Of course, we talk about rice cultivation and things like that. And, uh, but I'm glad that the exhibit, the internal, the internal exhibit in the welcoming center, uh, we have a few panels about, about culture, but that's not enough. And we need to continue telling the story of slavery without any sugar coating. We just need to know how to tell the story better in a way that, uh, and I usually say that when I lead a tour, when I have a crowd around me, black people, white people, no matter the age, I tell them at the end of this tour, if you feel guilty or you feel angry, that means I failed. Mm-hmm. In my mission to educate you about slavery and slave trade. And uh, one of the things I really to do is to explain to them you know, the slave trade was part of a system, a system of a nascent and growing capitalism that crushed everybody, and even Europeans. Mm-hmm. Those indentured servants were slaves, enslaved, you know, although it was temporary. For us Africans, it was for life. Unless you get to you buy your freedom from your master or your, the master grant you freedom, we have to understand also the involvement of African leaders in this mess. We know, we know very well the mechanism. It was a matter of you participate, you die. Uh, if you don't participate, you die. It's a, it was a matter of security too.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So we have to understand a lot that uh, it is, it was a very complex, it's a very complex uh, you know, thing. We have to know all of that. And also, uh, uh, like, uh, like I said, uh, whenever I lead to, I do my best to understand that uh, beyond all the sufferings and uh, all the mistreatments, what, they, what these people contributed to building America economically, Culturally. I go into the, the problem of American leaders too. We just celebrated the 4th of July, but that was not uh, Independence Day for Africans and African-Americans who were maintained in slavery. The founding fathers fought for their freedom, for the freedom of America. Black people participated in the liberation of Africa, of, of America. Even black troops from Haiti. But after they won, the United States became officially free and independent. They didn't think about uh, Africans and African-Americans and slaves. Of course, they stopped the international slave trade, but they did not stop slavery. And all these uh, founding fathers, all of them, or most of them, were slave owners. So they kept postponing the problem until uh, uh, maybe about 600,000 Americans died in that long civil war. And we know in the middle of the Civil War was the issue of uh, slavery.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And even after that, slavery was reinvented for 100 years under another name. Racial segregation, Jim Crow, a system that was worse than slavery, I believe. We have to tell the truth. We have to go in depth. And also at school, at university, we have to uh, provide very vast picture of slavery and invite people to, to reflect. And that's, uh, I think that's the best, uh, the number one, uh, let's say, step for reparations, understanding the system of slavery, understanding also whatever came with it. That's what I think. And I hope that we'll keep uh, you know, doing that and going into uh, in depth. Now, I will finish with this. It's good to learn about uh, the Atlantic slave trade, slavery, the building of the economy and the culture, all of that. But it is not just enough to talk about it. The Whitney Museum needs to be a place of, hope, of uh, performance, too. I've been talking about it for so many, so many years. We need to have a big festival every year at the Whitney Plantation. And I think the best time to do it is Juneteenth. Mm. Yeah, we're doing well. Every year we celebrate Juneteenth. But it needs to be a big event.
1: Almost like a homecoming.
0: A homecoming, yeah. A homecoming.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Something that would last like two or three days.
1: I love that idea.
0: And how people from all over the, 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 the River road Louisiana come.
1: You're
0: wonderful. i talk about know, people from from Africa, from Caribbeans, that should be possible, and we have space for that too. Mm-hmm. We have space for that.
2: On that same note, and you mentioned about St. Martinville and, and having the sister city, and there seems to be more of a desire for people from from America to go over, from well, African Americans to go to to go and visit. Africa. Um, that's part of the, the tourism industry. And then I had, had the chance, um, wonderful opportunity to go to Senegal with you, Dr. Seck. And that was my first time in Africa at all. And you know, these questions that we talk about, what does it feel like to be on the other side of the Atlantic and standing at the house on Gory Island, at that plantation house, and then realizing how similar it felt to the big house here at Whitney and seeing you know, that transfer of culture and also that, that transfer of oppression from one country, from one continent to the next. So what do you think about uh, more people taking those visits to Africa? Do you think that it is opening up people's eyes to understanding their culture, thoughts on whether or not you think it's a good thing for us to, to actually go in and visit parts of Africa?
0: What I always say to African-Americans, Don't worry about uh, where you will land in Africa. Just pick one country. It can be Senegal, Nigeria, Congo. Just pick one country where you feel like going to or whatever. That's a reconnection. Be reconnected and learn at least one African language. It's possible. In Senegal, for example, we have an institution who do that. You stay there for a month. I have seen students who come to Senegal. They say one month or a semester. When they leave, they speak French. They, they, they speak Wolof. Okay? So the language should not be anymore barrier. Just speak one language. It will introduce you to, to, the, whole, to, 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 to the whole culture. And it is important also African-Americans to be physically in Africa, reconnect with the, with the land. Yes, we went together to, to Senegal, but we didn't see, you didn't see much. Time was so tight. Mm-hmm. Maybe you saw that performance for the opening of the Museum of African Civilizations, but they did not take you into the country. No. To see and live in depth, you know, culture. I've been, to, I've been welcoming some people to Senegal, you know, take them to villages and all of that. They always learn. There's a particular time in Africa, especially in Senegal, after the harvesting of the food crops, they have, every village has its festival. It goes with uh, wrestling, African traditional wrestling, uh, dancing and singing. It is just uh, something, uh, 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 something great. I know that at the end of this year, uh, from Christmas to for about ten, maybe two weeks, uh, they are uh, organizing a, a trip to Senegal with the Congo Square Preservation Society to travel to Senegal from Christmas to the 10th or the 11th of of January. So I wish to be there to welcome them and uh, really give them a deep introduction to the the culture. And every African American should should do that. Yeah. It is not easy for us to, from Africa, to travel here. The visa is always a big issue, but also the... uh, the means to come over here. But it is also, I think it is important also for Africans to travel wherever they can into the diaspora and reconnect with the people, you know, with the Afro-descendants. Yeah. It has to go both, both, both ways.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I'm telling you that oftentimes there is a misunderstanding between Africans and African-Americans. African-Americans would just say, look, these Africans, what they know about them. What they see on TV, what someone decided to put in their minds. I remember doing a lecture at the Schomburg Center with John Cummings, and uh, one black guy with red locks came up and uh, to ask me a question, he will be the last question, he just did a comment about uh, Africans being stupid people. Hmm. I did not get mad. I just told him, "Someone put those words, that kind of thinking, someone designed it in, the, in, in your mind, you know? But you need to learn more about Africa and Africans and have a direct connection with Africa. And and you will know that Africans are not stupid. Mm -hmm. Stupid people cannot uh, survive or endure what we endure in this country. Despite all the bad treatment and adversity, African people managed to survive. How did they manage to survive? The main means uh, was rooted into the education they got in Africa that education allows you to go through a lot and be resilient and survive. And I always say, I'm here to -hmm. stay. You cannot eradicate me. You cannot eradicate my culture. So Mm -hmm. we are still standing up. Maybe some don't love us because they think we are potentially dangerous. And even the police officers, they are so prompt to kill us. But they they all love our culture. They love it. And now they need to not only love our culture, our blues, our jazz, our jambalaya, our gombo, couscous, and all of that. They need to learn how to love us, too. How to consider us as human beings, and not just potential uh, and dangerous uh, beasts. And uh, that's why reparation is not only for Black people, the is also for those people who grew up to be racist. Mm. We need a lot. Elect- I mean, very strong education here, educating people about, about this. Otherwise, it will be always hard for us to live in this country.
1: So, Dr. Sick... Whenever I bring students through, we talked about it a little bit earlier before we got started, but we were talking about the Wall of Honor and Gwendolyn Midlow Hall LA, bringing people through those spaces, especially students. For them, and for a lot of people, that's the first time that they see names and mm. people especially with the fact that many of our exhibits feature names that in addition to French, Spanish, English, of course, also you get names that are Wolof or Bambara or Mandinga or whatever other kinds of ethnic groups that ended up in this area listed. Why was it important for you in when y'all were shaping how Whitney Plantation would lay out what are monuments, memorials would look like and feel like, why was it important to you to elevate the names of these people who are often nameless at Mm. historic sites and plantations?
0: Now, if you have those names, that also means resilience. People resisted to keep their names, African names. Louisiana was a French colony and and they designed in 1724 the Black Code for Africans in Louisiana. And one article at the very beginning is about baptizing African. They give you a Christian name. They call you a Christian now you're baptized, but, but still enslaved. What a contradiction. Hmm. But you see, if you have an African name that survived through the documents, and even those documents were uh, made by the slave owners, judges, parish judges, you know, doing those inventories. And if someone comes up with a name you like Samba, that means he resisted. Just like Kuntakinte resisted and said, No, my name is not Tobi. My name is not Toby, my name is Kunta Kinte. And people, people did reason. So you have Samba, Kumba, you have all kinds of names, fulani names, Wolof of names, bamana names, mandingo, akan names like Kofi, Komina, Kwaku. So, it was really important for us to take that information from those uh, old books in the archives, take the names and take them back to life and display them so everybody can, uh, can see. Since not everybody, go, everybody would uh, read Bookie Fe Gombo, my book. But when you get to the Vidna Plantation and you go to that wall, you see those names. And that's something that surprised many, many people. We thought that, we thought, and even in Senegal, when I talked to them about uh, you know, these names and carried by our people over here, they are surprised. So they thought that uh, all of that was forgotten, the language was forgotten, everything was forgotten. No, 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 no. So on those walls, we just have uh, the name, but, uh, but it is still something, you know. I wish I could put on those walls all, all the folktales tales of the, the foodways and all of that. But you cannot uh, put too much on the wall. It is just a beginning. And this is designed to generate a spark. Every human being needs a spark. Like uh, a space shuttle, what takes it into the, you know, the space is just a, a spark. And I think uh, especially for African Americans, you know, everybody needs a spark to get into consciousness. Consciousness, need to, to, to action. So of course, it involves a lot of emotion, but what is more important is consciousness. Know who you are, where you came from. You came from a great country, which is the cradle of all human beings which has the longest history in the world, great empires, great civilizations. But you know, that's how slavery was organized and colonization later. You cannot expect from people who enslaved your ancestors or colonized Africans in Africa and turned them into, you know, enslaved them on their own continent. You cannot expect them to say something good about your history. You cannot expect them to see to say something good about uh, your culture. African spirituality called voodoo in uh, the Bight of Benin has been already presented as evil. We need to know to learn about all of that. So that war is a big start, is a very good start. And when we see African names, we have to let them understand that this is resiliency. And I think naming is also a very strong part of your identity. You don't just get your name by chance and every name means something. It's just like an anchor to a particular society, to a particular culture. I think it's a very good beginning. And I think with the names, that, that's, a, that's a very good uh, work of memory. I also, whenever you lead a tour, let them understand that those walls can be the wall of honor of the gold, the in the, the whole alleys. Those are cemeteries. Okay. It's a cemetery. When you go to the cemetery in Edgar, the Catholic cemetery, you will see Jean-Jacques Heidel. The tomb is over there, marked. Marcelin Heidel is there. Have- the Becknells, the Mielerites. So all those names associated with Whitney Plantation or the Heidel Plantation, are, the people are there. If you don't find them there, you come to New Orleans Cemetery. Number one, you find here Jean-Jacques Heidel uh, Jr. Uh, you find here Marcia Belfort Heidel. Madeleine Bosonnier Marmio, the wife of uh, Jean-Jacques Heidel. But what about Africans and the children who were born on these plantations? No way to be found.
2: Right. Mm-hmm.
0: And it is just a shame that no digging has been done uh, so far in that area. And now we have a big company trying to build uh, a grain elevator over there, maybe destroy, destroying the landscape and not even maybe allowing a very good digging over there to, to find those people who were who just buried in the wilderness Right, and after, at, at night. So... I think those names, you know, just uh, that's a very really good work of memory. No matter, sometimes they say, Dave, uh, we have duplication, all of that. When you get to that wall, you don't have too much time. Sometimes you can have a crowd of uh, 30 people plus, and everybody standing on one side of the wall. So those names were duplicated to allow people, wherever they stand over there, Two be able to see something and take and, and, and take it home
2: mm-hmm. yeah those names on the wall and, and those memorials when i first started working here at whitney well actually my my whole life i'm always like historic architecture and i like when i go to sites and i'm i'm always i always want to see what's the oldest thing that was that was made there and so i came in with the same attitude about whitney like we're really liking having a a preference for the historic structures. But like you were saying, when we bring people through the memorials and the way that people interact with, you know, our walls, which were built, you know, maybe they're only 20 years old, but it's the way that people will stand there and not only read the names, but read the passages from the slave narratives and how much it pulls them in, you know, and especially with our African American guests who, when they see a name on a wall, and they may recall that they had an ancestor that was named that had the same name, and that may have come from Louisiana. And so there's this tiny bit of hope that maybe it's their ancestor that they were looking mm-hmm. for. And it's just all of those ways in which our guests have engaged with the wall and that act of memory, you know, in reverence for those names, have made the memorial walls my favorite features on Whitney Plantation. Because like you were saying, it you know, the history is one thing and having the structures, but when you see the ancestral links and when you see people there being in the spirit and invoking their roots, their lineage, and that appreciation, it has made me appreciate and love, you know, those features of, of the plantation more than just the history. Again, the, the way that you, you know, were such a big part in putting together Whitney and what it looks like today. Uh, I think it's so beautiful and I think that it, it incorporates not only you know just the past, but the present and then also, you know, the future. Again, your stamp is, is all over Whitney and it always will be, and we're very fortunate for that.
0: And you, you know what, uh, my favorite time at the Whitney Plantation is uh, when the sun goes down and maybe we have the last visitors on the ground still and uh, just calm over there. At the, Middle I always sit down and go around and every time I do it, I see people I have met in Africans in colonial Louisiana or people I have met in the, in the archives. And I was, one, one time I was able to uh, find names for one friend of ours, his name is Henderson, he's deep into searching his family roots. We found, names of his own ancestors were there at the the only middle of her Wow.
2: So
0: it carries more than 100,000 names of people officially recorded in inventories or trials. From 1719, the year the first slave ship came to Louisiana from Africa, to 1820 when the domestic slave trade really took over when people were mostly brought, deported from the east coast of the United States to the Mississippi River. If you have an inventory, or you have a case like uh, Maroons being tried, or people who went into uprising, like the 1811 uh, German coast uprising, I found their names on, on the walls. I found other people, like in the French, during the French period, early French period who were taken to trial for uh, running away maroons i found those kind of information in the you know on those walls it is possible if you have an inventory it just has to be done between 17 19 and 18 20 you can you can find you can find uh, those people on those walls it may take a lot of time sometimes it's just by chance you know and that's why i'm struggling now to have the Louisiana Slave Trade Database completed. Today, I was supposed to be in Toronto, where, you know, working on uh, something, many projects related to slavery, and one of them is the completion of the Louisiana Slave Database. I've been talking about so many years, but I, so far, I didn't get, I really didn't get uh, the support I need to complete that work, that work. Yeah. And we need to do that. And we have some space over there too. When you have the church uh, at your back and you are facing the goal in the middle of the alleys, there's a lot of space to the, to the left. And we should have all the walls over there covering the people who were documented on this plantation all over Louisiana from 1821 to 1865. I think that should even be a state Project and I know Amber you know how to find grants I don't <laughs> yeah we need a big grant to complete the Louisiana slave database and I would love that to be completed before I die or before Gwendolyn Hall goes to rest
2: mm. uh-huh.
0: she's still fighting, she's still struggling she's still attending Zoom meetings with us we wow. know what to do we know how to do it but you know you didn't have some money to do that
1: you're right dr Sec. Mm-hmm. projects and we talk about it in, in a different episode as well about how a lot of the work that goes into preserving sites like ours and doing the important work of sharing information finding the information having enough staff to help find the information, interpret the information, create the materials that get sent out, create the website, monitor it, preserve it. All that takes money. Mm -hmm. And one of my major goals since coming on board has been to bring in more dollars to assist us in the important work that we're doing. And so it is definitely on the list. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> One of the tops, top projects that I have personally is just thinking about how can we build out more of our exhibitions and uh, mm-hmm. memorial spaces, as you've said. So all that to say, working on it.
0: <laughs> yeah, we need to take the message to, to the governor of Louisiana. Yes. To the state legislature. Talk to them.
2: You know uh, what? I, I, I bet we can. I would like to also volunteer the Descendants Project and being a part of finding getting the funding for this project so i I think that we can we now are very us three now we are going to put that Mm -hmm. as one of our priorities and not just us
1: not just us also our listeners right
2: listeners yes because
1: you have the power within your own community we're talking about whitney plantation but that's also an extension of you dear listener To think about in your own communities, how do you tell the stories of those who have been marginalized and actively left out of larger interpretations? And how can you use your local governments, um, your lawmakers, your teachers, your educators, your local community to mobilize on behalf of those people whose voices and names have been taken from them? What can you do? And one of those things is also advocating for yourself, advocating for those communities and our community to your state legis- legislature, lawmakers, and others, and funders. Again, if you're looking to fund us, contact Amber Mitchell at amitchell at whitneyplantation.org. Thank you.
2: Real smooth.
0: I would like to be more involved with in the descendant projects.
2: Thank you. Well, we'll put you to work, so... Yeah. <laughs>
0: you know? well, the last time I, when I was in, uh, in Senegal, into that village where our first prison was born, and it is a high, a very really good side of memory about culture in the Sierra country. So every March, you know, the, they organize a big festival. The ladies have their own festival. And they told me, look, you started a festival years ago here, the Bookie Blues Festival, which I started like 20 years ago. And for, for the first edition, I, I even had a keynote speaker from the University of Mississippi wow. and a Delta Blues singer from Class Day, Mississippi in Senegal. So they told me, we really would like to develop our festival and take it to an international level and especially have the diaspora involved. Mm-hmm. And March is a good time to travel to, 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 to Senegal. The weather is really nice and uh, you have always something happening. And I would like to build with you a additional project or program for Senegal for every March so we can organize a big delegation to go okay. and not visit the village, but also we have Senegal, we go to Senegal River. Visit Saint Louis and see all those similarities in terms of in terms of architecture, in terms of easygoing, and all of that in Saint Louis, Senegal, where everything started, where everything from where everything was organized. You need to do that.
2: Well, I would love it. (laughs) I would. would, That would be absolutely fantastic. And I know we have a lot of people, especially here, would love to go and experience that as well. So we'll talk. Definitely talk more about it.
0: And once you are in Senegal, the Gambia is, it does the same country as Senegal, you can also have a, a short trip to the Gambia, I did to the, to the program, yeah.
1: It Sounds like an NEH grant, Dr. Sick. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You know, my yeah. grant mind is thinking, so <laughs> NEH, just wait for the application to come in next year.
2: <laughs> That's right, see, so you've already, already got the topic. Mm-hmm. Exactly. We have the plan. Mm-hmm. Now we just
0: need the money. Right. Yeah. But please also think about what I said about the state legislature and the governor. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. We need to
0: talk to them. Yeah, I already talked to J. Bill, who it was, came with his work his delegation, with Bill Nungasa and all of that. But I need to find them over there in Baton Rouge and talk to them. We need to do that. They need to be, to be involved. They need to do something about
1: it
2: yeah they need to especially with everything that's going on and you know these um these cultural resources and our communities and and unmarked burial grounds all being under threat mm-hmm. and so definitely we need to have the lieutenant governor who's ahead who's the head of tourism needs to be involved in this as well mm, absolutely so
1: dr Seck, i have one last question what do you hope visitors whether they be African-American or from other different backgrounds and cultures and ethnicities, what do you hope visitors take away from their time at Whitney Plantation, from their visits, from the experience that they have at Whitney Plantation?
0: First of all, is a good understanding of the institution of slavery, to understand that Africans and the descendants were enslaved because they needed their skills. They need to build the country. The French wanted to stop dying of starvation. They need to know whatever the complexion, whatever the color of the skin, what Africans and African-Americans did here. Yeah. And also, understand a deep understanding of why we're doing this. It is not designed to blame anybody. It is designed for understanding, education, but also once we get, uh, like I said, involved a little of emotion, but what is important here is consciousness, which uh, would lead to action. So they have to understand that this visit, if the tour is done very well, it should turn them into missionaries. We cannot rewrite the history of slavery. It is gone, but people are still suffering from the legacies of slavery, and we need to have all the people involved in order to deal with the legacies of slavery, that's what is really important. That's why this uh, side of me- these side of me- sites memories were, were designed. They have to lead into action, otherwise we, you, just, we, you just can just get the place. Because if you don't, people don't go into action. The goal is not the main goal is not reached. Uh, that's what I want to say to people when they get to the Whitney understand the institution of slavery, how, how it worked, and also what came out of the enslavement of Africans and African-Americans. And more importantly, to go back with a deep consciousness about history of slavery, and also to be really involved in dealing with the legacies of slavery. Action. We need action. We need action. Beyond emotion and consciousness, we need Mm -hmm. action. Mm -hmm. If you don't do it, this country is going through a lot of difficult times. A lot of difficult times for our descendants. A difficult time for everybody. What is happening in this country, just... uh, People from the outside world are just... uh, They don't understand. Two days ago, a man was killed. Six bullets in in the body. Not to mention all of all, all, all the people who were killed just like the animals in the streets of America. What about the poverty of Afro-descendants?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mass incarceration. The other day I, was, uh, I visited the place of Bimai in Dubai Water. And there's something much over that one out of three African Americans will go to jail in their lifetime. One out of three. That's not good. And also people are being victims. Since you don't have the money, you build the oldest neighborhood, black neighborhood in America and build all that culture that draws so many tourists to New Orleans. And then you, fell, you fall victim to gentrification, yeah. pushing black people out of their neighborhoods. That's not right. When Katrina hit, they managed to bring back the musicians. as I suppose, and they created village musicians uh the, the musicians village. But mm. what they needed to do is to just to reconstruct all those black neighborhoods real quick. The culture from comes from the neighborhoods. Right. But not from a so-called musician's village. They know what to do and they know what they need or what they need to do. But uh, the will is not there, I think. And we need to have a critical mass of people with a lot of consciousness and also willing to act, to go into action in order to deal with the legacies of slavery. That's uh, what I wanted to say. So I'm here to stay as long as I can. You know? uh, and I hope that I'll be able for many years to come to keep bringing my, my contribution. Please put me to work. Yeah. Please uh, uh, keep me busy.
1: Thank you. Dr. Seth, thank you for joining us today.
0: You're absolutely welcome. Thank you so much. God bless you all.
1: We're Amber and Joy, and this has been an episode of Tilling the Soil, a Whitney Plantation podcast. Want to experience what Whitney Plantation has to offer? Come and visit us at 5099 Highway 18 in Wallace, Louisiana, just outside of New Orleans. You can also connect with us on social media at Whitney Plantation on all platforms. Thanks for listening. Funding for the 2021 Rebirth Grant has been administered by the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities and provided by the National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the American Rescue Plan and the NEH Sustaining the Humanities through the American Rescue Plan Initiative. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities.